Well, I want to start with something that's probably pretty obvious to most of you, and that is that nobody really knows through experience what happens after death, right? That's not very complicated because we don't know. Nobody has checked it out and come back to tell us. And so everyone tries to figure it out. Everyone tries to have some sort of thought about it. Much of the world, Buddhism and Hinduism and Sikhism, all believe in the incarnation, or in, excuse me, in reincarnation. You get to do it again. I don't know if they can imagine anything besides what we're doing right now. Islam believes in paradise and hell. Mormons in three levels of heaven. Christianity has had such an influence in our culture that it sort of drives people's perspectives on the afterlife in multiple directions. I've done funerals in which people visualize their loved ones looking down at them from the roof level. Their hope that they'll live good lives. Sometimes they hope that person will protect them, keep them out of trouble. We've even done funerals where people imagine their loved one hovering somewhere hoping they'll go out for a beer after the service. It just is all over the map. And one of the things that I've learned is that people kind of make up their own stories. They kind of make up their own ending, if you will. And I can understand that because we don't know much about it. That's the point. I mean, I, I could just ask a series of questions, really, and that would be obvious. So what happens when you die? I mean, like, what happens to your soul or your immaterial part? Do you go to heaven? If you go to heaven, what about your body? What then happens in the resurrection? Where does the new heavens and new earth come in? Or if those are, I don't know, too religious, I suppose, we could just say, do dogs go to heaven? That's part of the issue, isn't it, for some of us? Well, Will someone who goes to heaven actually be able to see and remember people on earth? And if they do, will it make them sad? Now, I'm just going to say, if you can answer all of those questions, this sermon is not for you. Because Jesus was approached by some religious people who thought they knew the answer and then wanted to trap him with their very strong opinion about what happens in the afterlife. And Jesus responded, but didn't necessarily answer all of the questions that um, I would like answered when he was talking to the Sadducees about um, the resurrection. So let's, uh, let's take a, a look at it in Matthew chapter 22. I'll begin reading in verse 23, Matthew 22, starting in verse 23, and You'll recognize some of the questions and you'll be mystified by other parts of it. The same day the Sadducees came to him, 
who say that there is no resurrection. And they ask him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left the wife to his brother. So to the second, and then the third, down to the seventh. After them, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So if you remember, we have had a series of challenges to Jesus. See, there, was a, there was a question about his authority. Where do you get your authority? And then Jesus told stories about um, the religious leaders making them, you might say, the villains of the story. And then they've begun now to challenge him in a series of direct confrontations. Last week, it was about taxes and trying to get Jesus in trouble with Rome. Here, it's about the resurrection, trying to get Jesus in trouble with Moses. But in this text... Jesus tells us that if you know the Scriptures and the power of God, you know that the resurrection is not merely an extension of this life, but it's an intimate relationship with the living God. So when you know what the Bible teaches and you know about the power of God, you realize that the resurrection isn't merely an extension of this present life. It's not a reincarnation of this present life, but rather it's an intensification of this already intimate relationship that you have with God. And so the trap begins in verse 23. It says, The same day the Sadducees came to Jesus. The same day. The same day is a timestamp for us. To, to give us insight into the speed at which these questions were coming. It was a, a machine gun, you might say, toward Jesus with all of the most difficult questions people could think of, hoping that he would violate Moses, he would violate Caesar. They'd have grounds to destroy Jesus. Wave after wave of people were trying to trap him now and get him to stumble. So that same day, the Sadducees came to them. The Sadducees were a different religious sect, different from the Pharisees. 
And they rose to prominence shortly before the time of Jesus. And they were very involved. They weren't as large as the other groups, but they were very involved in the religious councils, in the priesthood, in uh, the leadership of the Jewish community there in Jerusalem. Some early Christian writers uh, suggest that the Sadducees didn't believe in the Old Testament uh, except for the first five books of the Bible, what we, our Bible, the Pen, called the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. So they would listen to Moses, but n- nobody else. And that sort of shapes their question, doesn't it? That uh, Moses said you should, uh, a man should uh, take his deceased brother's wife and raise up children. That's what Moses, Moses is the issue here. But really, the, the chief characteristic of the Sadducees, the one that set them apart from all of the other religious leaders, really, uh, most distinctly, was that they did not believe in the resurrection. It's, listed, it's stated right here in our text. This is the reason for the question. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And it occurred to me that in that respect, they're like a lot of the people that you and I interact with all the time, aren't they? My guess is that you're going to... Uh, you're not going to go very far this week without running into people who don't believe in a resurrection, who think that this life is all that there is, that, there, that l- life is defined in this frame and there's nothing on the outside, that what you can empirically discern is reality. You're going to meet some people like these Pharisees. And it... Maybe you'll be tempted to look down on them or think that they're you know, somehow missing the point. But the reality is, they had reasons, didn't they, for not believing the resurrection. I mean, after all, why would somebody not believe in a resurrection? Maybe they'd never seen one. How about that? Yeah. And it didn't really make that much sense because death was final with every single person they've ever known, all of their ancestors, all of them. Death was final. And then, of course, there's that small point that Moses didn't appear to say anything about it. But with this group, it's likely that they didn't even consider a resurrection because they had been taught from a young age that our tribe doesn't believe in the resurrection. And they never probably really questioned it. That if you're going to be in this order of um, priests or religious leaders, you don't need to think about a resurrection. And so, with their preconceived idea that there is no resurrection, they come up with a question for Jesus about the resurrection, ironically. And really, this gives you a really clear indication of their uh, intention not to believe. This story that they're about to ask to tell Jesus and then ask his opinion about is based on a concept from the Old Testament that's important that, um, that you know about because otherwise it 
the um, story doesn't make any sense. And the reality is the story uh, helps make sense of a few other uh, places of, in the Bible. And so the concept is called leveret marriage. And that simply means that the, uh, if somebody dies and has no children, dies and marries and has no children, then uh, a brother or a close relative should marry his wife and raise up children on the brother's behalf so that the, the property would be kept in the family. So that the, the uh, inheritance would pass down in a way that wouldn't if there were no heirs, right? He would preserve the property in the family, would preserve the legacy of the brother and his wife. Now again, this doesn't really compute for me, I'm just going to say. But for them, in the, the way that they held property, in the way that they passed it down from generation to generation, um, this was their social safety net. This was the way that they kept um, widows from having to go into prostitution or uh, into abject poverty. So they, they kept um, the, the tribe or the group together through this process of leveret marriage. And so I said it's important. It's important if, if you're going to read in the first part of book, the book of Matthew of the genealogy of Jesus, in order to really get the most out of that, you have to understand that one of the things that happened back in Jesus' uh, ancestors had to do with this leveret marriage. And it's, it's a, a tragic but um, colorful story that helps you understand Jesus. Uh, another piece of the story has to do with the, uh, another place this helps us is in the book of Ruth. So in the Old Testament, you've got a book named Ruth. The whole book about Ruth is after this idea that somebody close to a widow needs to raise up children on, her, uh, on behalf of her husband. And so to make sense of that, it helps to understand leveret marriage. And then here, here is kind of the most in-your-face uh, version of uh, this uh, concept that you need to understand. So that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the direction that Moses... Um, gave about how to manage the legacy and the property of a deceased family member. And so here, their story is very simple. One brother marries, dies without children. His faithful brother then takes his wife to raise up children on his back, but dies without children. So does the next brother and the next brother and the next brother and the next brother down through all seven. And then... They all die, and the woman dies. Everybody's dead at the end of the story. So their question is, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And they're just thinking, this is the most ridiculous question. Of course, nobody knows. Of course, it proves there's no resurrection because this is really dumb. Okay, that's, that's what they're thinking. Now, it, it probably helps, and, and again, I just want to try and give you a little more color because it's Valentine's Week after all. And it's important on Valentine's Week especially that you recognize that marriage has not always been about love. 
In fact, it's pretty recent and it's fairly localized that uh, you would consider marrying for love because for most of the history of the world, in most places, I would say, uh, marriage was an economic arrangement. It was a pact between two families to, to protect property or to uh, increase wealth. And that was part of the way that it worked. And so when we're thinking of uh, some Hallmark movie, we really don't understand what's going on here. I'll just say. And so this was really an economic kind of a marriage ladder, you might say, for this woman. But they are so happy. They get to ask Jesus this stumper of a question. It's one of their favorites. I'm sure it's, it's so absurd they know that he can't get the right answer. And you have probably, you may not have heard this question before, but you've probably heard other questions like this. Because people have always liked to think of absurd questions as a reason not to believe. Okay. Here's one. Uh, and you may have heard this one. Can God make a rock so big he can't lift it? Could God make a rock so big he can't lift it? Now, th that's an absurd question. And just my asking it is a risk that the rest of you, that somebody here is going to be thinking about that question the rest of the morning. That's not the question I want you to an answer or think about. But... That's the kind of question we're on to here. It's like it doesn't really matter what you answer. You're in trouble. And so what do you think the right answer is to this question? Whose wife will she be? Well, let's look at Jesus' answer because Jesus' answer um, does help us land in the right place. Verse 29, but Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like the angels in heaven. Now I just have to point out because it seems like it's happening over and over and over. Jesus could have been nicer. Wouldn't you agree? You are wrong. Now, if anybody starts talking to me that way, okay, we're not going to have a very good conversation. And this is kind of how it went here, too. They didn't have a very good conversation. You are wrong, and in fact, your question's wrong. Because, he goes on to explain, you don't know the Scripture nor the power of God. Now, it's one thing to say you're wrong. It's another thing to say you're a religious leader and you don't even know your own religious text. That is probably worse. But it does turn out that rejecting all but the first five books uh, leaves you short of what God would want you to know about Himself, really. And in fact, that is the issue. They don't know the Scriptures. Down in verse 31, if you look down there, it says, you don't know what God has said to you, or what has been said to you, by God. You don't know what God says. And I think for, for, for us, that really is the question. We've got to know what God says. 
Now, they didn't know what God said about the resurrection. They didn't know Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19 says, Your dead shall live, and their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light in the earth. It will give birth to the dead. Okay, that's really a pretty clear statement about the resurrection. And then Daniel chapter 12 as well. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some, of, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So it turns out the Old Testament does teach the resurrection. But they had already like cut that out. By picking and choosing, they really didn't get the resurrection. Now I suspect that because you're in church on Super Bowl Sunday, that you are among the more devout and you probably um, would subscribe to some kind of belief statement that says something like, yes, I believe the Bible. Okay? That would be good if you did. Okay? I would hope that you'd say something to the effect of push, when pushed to the very edge, you'd say, well, yes, I believe the Bible. Okay? You're not like the, the Sadducees, because they would really hedge on that. My concern is not that you would say you don't believe in the Bible. My concern for you, and the thing that I want you to think about and even consider as you uh, think about spiritual things is, do you say you believe in the Bible and then by your actions or by the way that you move through the world act as if you don't believe the Bible? Really? Because I will say, that's far trickier. It's far trickier to say you believe it, but somehow not really believe it than it is just to admit, I don't really believe it. And they admitted they didn't really believe all of the Scriptures. See, my concern is not that you are like Thomas Jefferson who literally, uh, with a knife or scissors, cut out uh, things he didn't believe about his Bible and left him with this um, craft project-looking Bible I doubt any of you are that obvious about what you leave out of the Bible. But my concern is more that maybe we don't really believe it and we don't even recognize that we're ignoring it or we're going against it. Maybe we're blind to our own disbelief sometimes. And that, I think, is a concern. Lest we end up like the Sadducees, not believing the Scriptures or the power of God. Well, they, they didn't understand the Scriptures and they didn't know the power of God because they didn't know the Scriptures, then they didn't know the power of God because they would learn the power of God in the Scriptures. That's how you learn about God. Because the power of God was manifest in creation. And the Scripture tells you that God spoke the world into being. The power of God is obvious in the Exodus. It's clear when they pass through the Red Sea or in the capture of Jericho or with David and Goliath. The repentance of Nineveh required 
miraculous power of God. The power of God's manifest everywhere in Scripture. But nowhere is the power of God more evident than in the resurrection of Jesus. And really, the resurrection period, this is why they don't believe in the resurrection, because that would take so much power to make something dead alive that they can't imagine it. Not knowing God's power, the resurrection is not an option for them. Well, then Jesus goes on to clarify for them some, some of the specifics, the specifics about their story with, uh, with respect to marriage. Because their assumption is that there would be some kind of continuation in the resurrection of what's been going on here on earth. And Jesus wants them to know that the resurrection is not merely this life, only in color. Your familial relationships in the resurrection are not like marriage here with the volume turned up. The resurrection life is not just an extension of what you've got here. Jesus says instead that they will be like the angels. Now, like the angels, not in that they have wings and you know, bows and arrows and harps, but like the angels, in that they are eternal and have no need to procreate. And so, this is how the humans will be in the resurrection, and that leaves a lot of questions unanswered. I'm just going to say, I would love to answer them for you, but they're unanswered for me too. They're just, that's what you have. But that's why the wedding vows typically say, till death do us part. Because there is a parting at death, and there is not marriage after that. In other words, there is uh, discontinuity in the resurrection between this life and the next that make our assumptions about what will make us happy or what will make us fulfilled or what will make us feel loved that render those assumptions no longer helpful. And so rather than just leave us there, though Jesus picks up the resurrection and tells us more in verses 31 to 33. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus brings it up again, and to do so, he quotes from Exodus chapter 3. This is the, the, the story of Moses and the burning bush. And so Jesus quotes there, but before we look at the quote, I, I want to point out a few things about it that I think will be helpful. The first is, just to make sure that you recognize, this is from Exodus. Exodus is one of the five books the Sadducees recognize. And so what he did was masterful in that he went to the very text that they accepted and said even in Exodus, Moses talks about a resurrection. You probably missed it, but you're going to need to deal with your own scriptures. The second thing that I want to point out about it is the way that this talks about 
the book of Exodus. It says, Have you not read what was said to you by God? What was said to you by God. Now, he could probably say this any number of different ways, but he says that it was said to you. God spoke to you by speaking to Moses. This was written for the nation of Israel for you. Isn't that interesting? There is this, this personalized uh, focus that this is written for you. In other words, God intended you to listen in on this. He expects His Word to be timeless and personal. The third thing is related to that, and that is just that Jesus supposes that reading God's Word is how you will hear from Him. Reading God's Word is how you will hear from Him. He says, ask the question, have you not read? God reveals Himself in a book. And you cannot expect to know God apart from how He reveals Himself, apart from His book. And so, it's important that you read it, pay attention to it, meditate on it, because that's the way that God intended to communicate with you, because this is the Word of God to you. And here's a quotation then from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And he said to him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is what was written for you. Then Jesus wants to make sure, and he kind of teaches us how you're to meditate on the Scriptures. He gives this quotation, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. And then Jesus tells us, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. In other words, he wrote that so that we might, might register for us that God is the God of the living, not the dead. Now, the thing I want you to notice, and this is why I want to, to commend reading your Bible to you as a way to hear from God, because God communicates through His Word, and what He's communicating here hinges, get this, on the tense of a verb. Now, some of you probably thought you'd never need the tense of a verb again, but you need the tense of a verb right here. Because what you have is past tense, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died. Past tense. But present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the point that Jesus is making is that that very tense of a verb matters. And it is proof of the resurrection. It is proof that this life that you can see with your eyes and touch with your hands is not all there is. Because God, the eternally existent one, the great I am, that's what he's telling them in Exodus, that tell Israel, I am has sent you. That God, this eternally existent God, is present 
now with the deceased patriarchs. Which means those deceased patriarchs are alive in His presence, not merely dead. Therefore, Jesus argues, there's a resurrection. And I think what's more, there's, there's more here even that we would gain by meditating on it, and that is that this resurrection would indicate that God is now the God of Abraham, the God of, he repeats it three times, Isaac, the God of Jacob. In other words, he belongs to them. One commentator said, to be the God of someone implies a caring and protecting relationship which is as permanent as the living God who makes it. In other words, what you would be hoping for otherwise in marriage, what you would be hoping for otherwise by being fulfilled in this life, what you would hope for as far as meaning and purpose and something that would give your life some um, ballast in the storm, you find in the resurrection. Because God there is the God of you. It's the, you might say that He's the God of Scott. He's the God of Debbie. He's the God of Justin. He's the God of any of us. In other words, all of that relationship that you began in this life, He is, is now in its perfect fulfillment in the resurrection. The love and the peace and the acceptance that you can only hope for and dream of. And maybe have a small slice of it in a wonderful marriage you find in the resurrection because He is my God. Perhaps, perhaps that's why the people were amazed. Now I need to tell you that the resurrection is the best news for happily married people. Because that taste that you had of the peace and the love um, points you to the resurrection. And it tells you that you don't need a happy marriage to have this deep and eternal happiness. But there's more. There's more than simply the ongoing experience of marriage. But the best news for unhappily married people is the resurrection. It tells us that your unhappy marriage is but temporary. And that God will wipe away all tears from your eyes. The best news for single people is the resurrection. Marriage is not a goal to be attained or a prerequisite for happiness. It doesn't provide certainty of God's favor. It is a non-essential. And that is ratified in 
the resurrection. Even more than that, though, the resurrection is the best news for this woman who had seven husbands. Because she was passed around and she will never be mistaken for property or an object ever again. I think for us, the problem is the crisis of imagination. Because, among other things, we have our imaginations so shaped or warped by Dante's Inferno, by countless sci-fi movies, that we can't imagine something happening after death that is richer and sweeter and happier than anything on this earth. Our tastes have been so um, cultivated by Hallmark movies that we can't really fathom something that's better than that perfect romance. Yet, what Jesus is getting at here is that in the resurrection, God is the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of you. That there is a closeness with the God who is characterized and even named as love Himself. And you will experience that love the love that you long for face to face with God one day. The other part of this that causes us trouble is that when you make marriage or sex into an idol, the story that you tell yourselves about it, the story that you buy into is ultimately less than true. You have to convince yourself that someday that is going to change and make me really happy. You have to make it ultimate for it to have the meaning that we tell ourselves it needs to have. And I'll tell you what, we are surrounded by a world that has idolized marriage and family and sex. Well, there's one more thing that I just want to make sure to, to give you something to hang on to about the resurrection. There's this one more piece, and, and that is that we're more familiar, really, with the resurrection than the Sadducees were. They couldn't imagine it, but we can. Because part of the church calendar is Easter, after all, isn't it? Once a year, we all get together and we remind ourselves, Jesus rose from the dead. Or... More practically, we meet on the first day of every week. That's why you're here today. Because Jesus rose again from the dead on the first day of the week. Yet I think we miss the centrality of this resurrection because in the Bible there are two. There's a general resurrection that uh, the Sadducees were asking Jesus about, 
But then there is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the two are linked. At least the, the, the New Testament links them. And this is what I, I want to sort of nail down for you so that you're absolutely certain about the resurrection. Because if Jesus is raised from the dead, then there is a general resurrection. That's the argument. And we're not, I mean, we're not the first church that really need to talk about the resurrection. And the church in Corinth, letter to them in the first, the first letter of the 15th chapter, says this. It says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? In other words, those two go together. If Christ is raised, then there is a resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees don't believe in. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, like the Sadducees are right, then even Christ, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So that, in other words, if Christ has not been raised, that is our, our number one uh, foundation for believing in a future resurrection. If that is not true, then this frame around life with all that you can see and touch and taste and feel, it's all there is. And your faith is in vain. But, look at verse 20. It says, but in fact, Christ has, has been raised from the dead. He is the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. In other words, Christ is raised, therefore all will be raised. So, one of the things that we know that the Sadducees didn't really have a clue about is that we have a guarantee of a final resurrection because we know that the tomb of Jesus is empty. In other words, all that I've been talking about, about there being something more in the resurrection than marriage, something more in the resurrection than feeling loved or accepted, you can have that hope for more because Jesus rose from the dead. And then, I just want to point you to the quality and what it really will look like in the resurrection in Revelation chapter 21, it's described this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. They heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God and He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And He was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. I just want you to recognize that when you're hoping for love and you find betrayal, when you're hoping for companionship and you end up lonely, when there's supposed to be warmth and there's coldness, one day all of those tears will be wiped away. And in the resurrection, God Himself will be your God. 
and you will be his people. And the love of which marriage is only a shadow will actually be fulfilled in person in the presence of God. I think the crowd heard this and says they were amazed. It's my hope and prayer that you will stand amazed at the teaching of Jesus and at the hope of the resurrection. Because all of the good things that you have in this life point you in that direction. And all the bad things in this life will become but a vapor. And the thing that will remain is a God who will be your God. He will be the God of you. And you'll experience all of the love that you could only hope for now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are um, really desperate to find the kind of hope and love that you offer us. We're told we can look other places for it. Father, would you Would you cut those avenues off that we might really find you? That we might not tell ourselves another story or make an idol out of these other things. But Father, we want to love you and be loved by you. So will you help us to believe your word and to hang on to hope? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.